man. Thank you, Jordan. Good job. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 29. Genesis chapter 29. We're going to be looking at Jacob and Laban. I've set a pretty ambitious goal for us this evening. We're going to cover chapter 29 and 30 and 31. We're going to cover three chapters that cover 20 years, and we're going to do it in about 20 minutes. How's that? I want you to remember now that uh, Jacob had began his journey. He's gone to find a wife, but we also remarked on the fact that when he began this journey, when he left home to seek his wife, he was already in his 70s. And when he returns home, after 20 years, he's going to be in his 90s. Uh, We last looked at Jacob uh, as he had just awakened from a very hard night's sleep outside of the city of Luz where he had a rock for a pillow. During that night, Jacob had had a strange dream in which he had seen a ladder or a stairway going to heaven. He saw angels ascending and descending upon that uh, staircase. And in that dream, God had reassured Jacob that he will keep his promises to his father and his grandfather, and he's going to keep them through him. Jacob was also reassured that wherever he went, God would be with him. We're not told anything else about his 500-mile journey. To Haran until he arrives. Now, <clears throat> there are many ways in the English language to express the idea of retribution. This is just a fancy way of saying getting what you got coming to you. For instance, we say everything that goes around comes around. Or we say things have a way of evening out in the end. And as children, we all heard turnabout is fair play. Such as, if you don't like being made fun of, well, turnabout is fair play. Many commentators see this episode in the life of Jacob and his dealings with Laban as, a, as justice for the way that he has deceived his father and his brother Esau. I don't know if Jacob's dealings with Laban were getting what he had coming to him or not, but I do know that it helped to mold him into a man of character and integrity. Now I want you to notice with me four crucial aspects of Jacob's time with Laban. And we are literally going to hit the high spots, so you need to keep your finger there. Jacob and his wives... Jacob, no doubt, knew by heart the story of how his mother, Rebekah, had been revealed to Abraham's servant at a well when she offered to water all all ten of his camels. And when Jacob finally arrived on the outskirts of Haran, the first thing he sees is a well. And around that well are several herds 
of sheep. And when Jacob asked the shepherds if they knew Laban, the answer was, yes, we know him. In fact, we know him well. In fact, his daughter Rachel should be here any time with the herd that she's tending. When Jacob meets Rachel, he is literally overcome with emotion. As he sees how God has already worked out this situation well beforehand. He explains this to Rachel. Rachel rushes to her home to tell her family about that. And Jacob begins to tell his whole story to Laban. Jacob ultimately moves in with Laban and goes to work for him. I want you to pick up in verse 15 where we find out, okay, you're going to work for me. Now Laban says, what should your wages be? And Jacob is ready with an answer. Jacob says, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. So the seven years passed very quickly. The Bible sums up that period in one very striking verse, one of the most striking verses in the whole Bible. It's found in verse 20, and it says, And so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed as only a few days to him because of the love that he had for her. Now we come to the wedding night. First, there's a huge feast in the honor of the happy couple. That took most of the day. Then at night, the husband retired to his chambers, and the bride was escorted by her father to meet the groom, and thus the marriage was consummated. Up to this point in the story, everything has gone as planned. But Uncle Laban has a surprise in store for Jacob. Verse number 23. Came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. Now, there are many questions that we'd like to ask, or at least I would like to ask. The main one being, how in the world could something like that happen? And the answer is, if we are following modern American wedding customs, it couldn't. It couldn't happen. No man could be fooled in that way. But weddings in the Near East followed a very different pattern. The most likely explanation is that when Laban brought his daughter Leah to Jacob, it was late. It was very dark, and she was veiled from head to toe. There's also a strong possibility that Jacob had been drinking all night. That may have impaired his facilities just a little bit faculties. And although the Bible doesn't say so, we certainly can imply so from the traditions of the time. In the darkness, somehow Jacob didn't realize that the woman that was with him was Leah, not Rachel. And so the marriage was consummated, but with the wrong woman. Verse 25 tells us, and so it came to pass in the, mo- in the morning, behold, it was Leah. In the Hebrew, it is much more abrupt. It's just two words, behold, Leah. He realizes at this point, obviously, that he's been duped. 
When Jacob finally gets to Laban, he asks a very crucial question in verse 25. Why have you deceived me? The interesting thing about that is, unknowingly perhaps, Jacob had used the form of the same Hebrew word that Isaac used when he told Esau that Jacob had deceived him. Laban replies that it is not the custom to give the younger in marriage before the firstborn. He offers Jacob Rachel as well, with the condition that he works another seven years. Genesis 29.30 simply says, And Jacob did so. Which brings us to Jacob and his children. The Bible reveals in the creation account that God only created one wife for Adam. And to take more than one wife was going beyond what God intended. Polygamy was a violation of the picture of what marriage was supposed to represent, and that was supposed to be the covenant relationship between Israel and God. If we remember that, then the polygamous marriages that are revealed in Genesis can be seen in a much different light. Clearly, the ideal for Hebrew marriages was always monogamy. And although various individuals in Genesis are revealed as having more than one wife, these marriages were almost always catastrophic. The beginning of the 12 tribes of Israel are from one father, Jacob, but four different mothers. The first two are the sister wives, Leah and Rachel, a recipe for disaster. And the other two are slave girls, Bilhah and Zephah. The first four are by Leah. Now, these two sisters are both desperate women. Leah is desperate for love because it tells us in Genesis 29:30 that Jacob loved Rachel. This unfortunately sets in motion a lifelong competition for the affection of Jacob. God sees Leah's distress, and therefore he comforts her with the ability to bear children. Rachel, on the other hand, although beautiful and loved by her husband, is unable to bear children, and she is therefore desperate to bear children. Leah bears four sons to Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Four by the slave wives, in a bitter rivalry to produce heirs for Jacob, The two sisters each give Jacob their maids to be his concubines. Rachel, jealous of the children Leah is able to bear, gives gives him her maid, who gives him two sons. Leah, not to be outdone, responds in like fashion by giving him her maid, and she also bears two sons. Then we read, Leah also bears Jacob two more sons and a daughter. Rachel finally is able to bear two sons, her first, Joseph, in chapter 30, and later another she named Benjamin in chapter 35. Seems significant, at least to me, that the kingly line of Judah 
and the priestly line of Levi both come through the unloved Leah. Moses, David, and ultimately Jesus will trace their lineage through her. Now there are a couple of difficult parts of this passage, both of them in chapter 30. One is found in verses 14 through 17. I call it the Mandrake Experience or the Mandrake Experiment. It's not one of those shining moments in the life of Rachel. One of uh, Leah's children brings some Mandrake root in. Mandrake was a root that was believed to be both an aphrodisiac and an aid to fertility. This is not, by the way, biblical support that that had such power, but just merely a record that Rachel and Leah thought it did. Rachel is so desperate to have that that she makes a deal with Leah. She says, you can have Jacob for one night if I get the mandrake. And that was the deal. Ironically, Leah has another child. Rachel does not. Not only Jacob and his children, but Jacob and his wages. Jacob has by this time more than fulfilled his obligation to Laban. If I piece the details together correctly, Jacob has four wives and 12 children. 12 children in the years that he's been working for Rachel. 12 children under the age of seven. That should make almost anyone feel better about their situation. Maybe with the exception of the Duggars, but almost anybody else. He now has a large family, and he has been successful in making his father-in-law very wealthy, but he has very little to call his own. He not only needs a raise, he needs a vacation. Finally, Japheth goes to Laban, and he tells him of his intention to return home. And Laban is becomes immensely aware that Jacob is the one who has caused him to become wealthy, and he is very reluctant to see him go. And so Laban asked Jacob, in about verse 30, what can I give you to get you to stay? What can I give you? Jacob says, I don't want you to give me anything. But here's what I propose. Now, Laban no doubt has in his mind that Jacob's going to ask for a certain number of animals so that he can begin his own herd and flocks. And, but Jacob says he's not going to take anything that presently exists. Only those animals born in the future that were speckled, striped, or spotted, that is, abnormally colored in some fashion, they will become Jacob's wages. Since the dominant color traits of the animals were solid colors, this was a proposition that was totally dependent upon God. Jacob even goes so far as to say that he will take the speckled animals that currently exist and he would not use them from breeding. In fact, he would take them apart from all the other herd and keep them away from the other animals. Since this is so obviously in his favor, Laban accepts. The conclusion of the matter is given in verse 43 when we read, Thus the man Jacob 
became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks, female and male servants, and camels and donkeys. Not only Jacob and his wages, but Jacob and his departure. Jacob came to town expecting that he would be there a few months, perhaps a year. He ended up spending 20 years, seven years for Leah, seven years for Rachel, remaining years building up, six years building up his own flocks. Now the time has finally come for him to go home. But how could Jacob really be sure that it was God's time for him to go home? How could he be sure that the decision that he was about to make was the right one? Well, I think there are three elements that we can see that help him to make that decision. There, first of all, is a clear conviction or a clear desire. Beginning in chapter 30 and verses 25 and following, it tells us that Jacob began to very earnestly desire to return home. There was a developing conviction within his heart that this is what he needed to do. There was, secondly, confirming circumstances in the first two verses of chapter 31. A turning point seems to come when Jacob had, hears Laban's sons talking about the fact that they are very envious of his prosperity. And he also noticed about the same time that Laban's attitude toward him had begun to change. So becoming aware of the envy of Laban's sons and seeing the change in the attitude of Laban himself, Jacob knew not only he had a desire to return home, but the time had come for him to do so. There is thirdly a confirming message from God. The final element of the decision was when he received a message from God that it was time for him to go home. Arthur Pink, in his book, Gleaning in Genesis, wrote about these particular three principles. He says it is not always that God gives us a manifestation of these three principles. But whenever they do combine and are evidence, we must be sure of his will in any given circumstances. First, a definite conviction in our hearts that God desires us to take a certain course or do a certain thing. Second, the path we would have, he would have us to take being indicated by outward circumstances which make it humanly possible or expedient that we should do it. And third, and after definitely waiting on God for it, some special word from the scripture which is suited to our case and which the spirit brings to our notice while we are waiting for his guidance noting that it is a plainly a message from God to our individual heart thus we can be assured that God is with us and the most important thing is to wait on God we finally come to Jacob's <coughs> confrontation with Laban Jacob and his family load up and they flee and when Laban hears about what has happened he pursues them and as Laban pursues Jacob he is warned by God do not harm him but when the two men finally meet up in chapter 31 beginning in verse 25 there is a classic confrontation between two angry men 
Laban speaks first. He has an attitude of injured innocence, which is a mixture of hypocrisy and gross exaggeration. He accuses Jacob of deception, which was true, of carrying his daughters off like captives in war, not true, of depriving him of the right of giving his daughters and grandchildren a proper farewell, true, but we have to wonder what he would if he would have really let them go. And he also accused them of stealing his household gods. But Jacob didn't realize that part. Jacob angrily replies that he was afraid that Laban would take away Leah and Rachel by force, which I think might be a legitimate fear. He also denied stealing the household gods, and he promises to put to death anyone in his family who was found with them. Laban searches for his gods. We're talking about little idols. But he couldn't find them because Rachel, who is the one who had stolen them, hid them in her saddle. And then she pretended that she couldn't get up because it was that time of month and she just couldn't stand. Jacob now denounces Laban for the 20 years of mistreatment. He accuses him falsely of, of him accusing him falsely, but sorry, of deliberately taking advantage of him, of changing his wages, and of and he concludes by saying, and this is the capper, he said, If God had not been with me, you would have sent me away empty-handed. That is probably very likely. Laban is really shocked at this whole turn of circumstances. He says, all that you have, including your wives and your children, actually belong to me. That's absurd. In verse 44, he said, well, if you're going to be so hard-hearted about it, there's nothing I can do, so we just need to settle this, ma- this matter right now, right here. And so they make a witness heap, that is, they took a bunch of stones and they heaped them up, a pile of stones that marked a boundary between Laban and Jacob. And then <clears throat> Laban utters those famous words, that you may have actually heard misapplied in a wedding ceremony. The words are, May the Lord watch between you and me while we are away from each other. It is interpreted by us to mean trust and fellowship, when in fact what it meant was just the opposite, distrust and separation. It meant that these two men didn't trust each other, And they were asking God to watch over them and to keep them safe from each other. The pillar, says Laban, stands as a point that I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you, and you will not go past this pillar to my side to harm me. The next day Laban kisses his daughters and his grandchildren, and he blesses them, and they left and returned home to Haran. The story of Jacob and Laban comes to a rather unhappy ending. 
It ends with deception and anger and bitter accusations. And as far as we know, Jacob and Laban never saw each other again. And we come to the end of the story and we ask ourselves, well, was Jacob treated fairly? No, he was not. Was it fair for Laban to switch sisters on Jacob at his wedding? Well, no, obviously it wasn't. Was it fair that he had to work another seven years for his uncle Laban? No, it was not. So then why did God allow this to happen? God allowed this to happen because he knew this was the only way he could develop godly character and integrity in Jacob's life. How many times have you heard someone say, but that's not fair? True. But God never promised us that the world would treat us fairly. If God would have let his son be crucified while he was innocent for our sin, do you think that he would exempt us from having to suffer any <coughs> unjust treatment? No. The great danger for us in reacting to unjust treatment is this. We get angry, we get better, and then we become victims. I know some people, even some Christians, and you do too, who go through life as perpetual victims. Someone is always mistreating them. Someone is always taking advantage of them. Someone is always misusing them. And they are angry, and they are angry at God for allowing this to happen. Stop to consider... For the most part, godly character is not developed in good times, is it? When everything is going great in your life is not when your character is being developed. Godly character is developed in your life as you respond positively and creatively to unjust treatment. Romans chapter 5 Verses 3 and 4, and this will be my closing passage. He says, We also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. He says, One thing leads to another. What begins as injustice leads to perseverance, which leads to character which leads us to understand that we have hope in God. When you're in trouble and you feel circumstances piling up against you, the key to survival is be a student, not a victim. A student says, what can I learn from this? A victim says, why is this happening to me? Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you for each one who's been so faithful to come tonight.